Hey folks, Nico Perino here. We have a very special episode for you today. By now, I'm sure you've all heard at least something about Dominion Voting Systems' defamation lawsuit against Fox News. The case, which stemmed from allegations of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election, suddenly ended last month with an historic $787.5 million settlement. Well, for today's show, we're featuring a conversation between two of the opposing attorneys on the case. You may recall that Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis complimented both of the legal teams on the case, saying it was some of the best lawyering he had seen in his 13 years on the bench. Now, this may actually be the first time the two parties on the case have actually spoken together in a public forum. And they are surprisingly candid in discussing not only the case and its outcome, but also the arguments they would have made had the case not settled and instead gone to trial. Joining us on the show is Tom Clare, who is a founding partner of Clare Lock LLP and was counsel to Dominion. And we also have Dan Webb, who is co-executive chairman of Winston and Strawn, and he was counsel for Fox News. They are interviewed not by me for this show, but by leading media lawyer and past, so to speak, guest Lee Levine. And after Lee's interview, Tom and Dan take questions from participants in the First Amendment Salon, which hosted this conversation on May 9th and was generous enough to let us use it for a, so to speak, podcast episode. Now, I don't think the Fox Dominion case needs much setup. Uh, It was headline news for months, and we covered it on a past show. So I'm going to try and get out of the way and let Lee tee it up with Tom and Dan. But before I do, I just want to make a note that you may hear some periodic background noises while Tom in particular is talking. The conversation was a mix of in-person and virtual participants, and sometimes shuffling and other noises made by the virtual participants were broadcast through the speakers in D.C. where our microphones were set up. We did our best to minimize the disruption throughout the show, and now, with that out of the way, I am going to turn it over to Lee for his conversation with Tom Clare and Dan Webb. Freedom of Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. So I am going to assume that everybody in this audience knows uh, the background of this case, or else you wouldn't have come. So we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. Um, I do want to make a couple of uh kind of disclaimers at the beginning. One is that um, uh, especially Dan might be uh, hamstrung some in what he can talk about uh, because there are pending cases, as uh, many of us know, uh, remaining uh, against Fox by uh, Smartmatic and others um, arising out of the same common nucleus of operative facts, as we used to say in the law business. and the other thing I want to say is that I'm, I'm particularly um, honored to be here with Dan and, and with Tom because I, I followed the case quite, quite closely and I, I, the lawyering on both sides was just outstanding. Um, the, the briefing uh, w- was excellent um, and, and uh, for those of you who listened to the audio the day the settlement was announced, um, Judge Davis I think went out of his way to compliment the lawyers on just how outstanding uh, their their efforts were. So um, uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, I want to start by um, not rehearsing the facts of the case, but by asking both Dan and Tom to talk a little bit about how and when they and their firms got involved in the case. 
Uh, and uh, that's kind of a two-part question. That's part one. And part two is um, one of the things that, that struck, I think, those of us who are or have been in the legal business is the number of law firms on each side. Um, and I was wondering if you could each speak uh, a little bit about uh, how how responsibility was divided up and, and uh, how uh, you made that uh, that work. So why don't we start with you, Tom? Uh, sure. Well, uh, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for the very kind invitation. Um, I'm thrilled to be here with, uh, with Dan. Um, we actually worked together once before, um, although not really together. I was had the, the smallest of bit roles in the BPI case. I wrote one of the very early demand letters that was later to be used as an exhibit at trial, and I felt like I had a very small piece of that win. Um, to answer your question, uh, so uh, the call first came to our firm over Thanksgiving weekend um, of 2020, uh, right after the election and some of the craziness was happening in the media. And uh, our office is a, a block from our house, and I excused myself from the Thanksgiving preparation festivities and walked down to the office and had a, uh, a quiet conversation with the client. And you know, at that point, we were trying to make sense of just the um, you know the media environment that was going on. Um, it was live fire exercise; people were going on the air saying things on a daily basis, and they were just trying to get a handle on that. We were not, at that point, thinking about litigation or you know, what claims we could bring. We were thinking about really trying to stem the tide of false information that was being reported, um, both by the individuals who were making those claims and also by the media outlets that we were, felt were increasingly responsible for um, giving these people a platform and perpetuating these, these same false statements. And so uh, the immediate triage of our firm was uh, you know, getting involved with that and trying to help the client develop a, kind of a pre- and post-publication strategy of uh, corresponding with these outlets to make sure that the facts were getting out there in a way that were you know, truthful uh, and obviously getting the client's messages across, but also developing a written record that, that lawyers would recognize as being um, you know, impactful later on if we were gonna be in litigation scenario. And that, that involvement lasted for, I would say, a, a month or so uh, into December. And then we really had a little bit of time to start thinking about what does a litigation strategy look like? And you know, do we, is there a litigation strategy? What does it look like? Who do we sue? Where do we sue? And in what order? And um, we put, put together that type of uh, an analysis. Um, and it quickly became clear that the scope of that project was, was going to be a significant undertaking, both with the cases we had against um, individuals, uh, you know, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and the MyPillow guy, uh, and against the media outlets. And, and the strategy that we sort of laid out uh, would involve walking and chewing gum at the same time and filing multiple cases in multiple different jurisdictions. And at that point uh, is around the time that we started to team up with Sussman, um, who were terrific partners with us. They were a great, great law firm uh, with great trial experience. And we knew that we were going to need um, an army of lawyers to do this together. And so uh, to answer the second part of your question, um, when Sussman came on board, uh, we spent a lot of time with their team kind of talking about how to allocate 
responsibility in a way that would leverage each firm's particular strengths and expertise, but also in a way that would not re result in a lot of overlapping work. So for example, in the, in the Fox matter, uh, we assigned responsibility for different silos of content providers to different firms. And so uh, we had on-air hosts that Claire Locke was responsible for, the entire silo from the on-air personality down to the producers, to the bookers, to all the document review related to that, all the way down to following up on the uh, interrogatory responses to the privilege log. You know, we owned that silo, that vertical, and then Sussman had a bunch that they were responsible for. Um, and I'd also be remiss if I did not recognize the involvement of Rod Smola, who um, once uh, we got the team together, there was sort of a collective moment of, we need to have Rod involved in this. I mean, we were going to be litigating in Delaware a defamation case. And, you know, as I'm, as I'm reading Rod's book on, uh, on my, uh, Rod's book on my uh, desk, um, it just made a lot of sense to have him involved. And he was, you know, instrumental in helping us bring, bring it all together. Excellent. Um, Dan? Same question for you. Well, I got involved in the case. Um, another law firm was representing Fox, and um, I think it was in uh, <clears throat> last July, six, seven months before the trial, uh, I got contacted by the general counsel of Fox Corporation and Fox News and asked if um, I would have any interest in, um, in representing uh, Fox in the Dominion litigation. I had tracked the litigation, but not in any significant way, uh, but I was obviously aware of the case, um, and so I was asked about it. I said, I, you know, I love trying cases. That's I've spent my entire professional career trying cases, and I have a particular affinity. I like defamation cases and get contacted on a fair number of them uh, over the years. You mentioned the Pink Slime case was a, a very interesting trial that I enjoyed being connected with. Representing beef products, so I said immediately I would love to be considered. I uh, basically cleared, cleared conflicts, and I went to New York and uh, read some background materials. And when you go into beauty contests, you don't know how many firms you're competing against and what's going to happen. And I had a meeting in New York with the Fox News and Fox Corporation lawyers, and uh, we went out and drank some wine, and I got hired. That's what happened. That's, that's, uh, and we, I got hired, and. Uh, uh, I can tell you that I've had the privilege of uh, working with uh, um, some great law firms. My, our role, Winston Strong's role in the case, was to be a chief trial counsel for the trial. Uh, but uh, we obviously had Clement Murphy as our appellate lawyers that were, would handle the appeals, since this case was always, I think, identified in the First Amendment world as having some significant uh, First Amendment issues that would end up on appeal. And so I do believe that, uh, certainly at least on our side of the aisle, there was a strong belief that the appeal could very well be as important or more important than the trial itself, because I think I can fairly say for Fox News and Fox Corporation, the, the First Amendment issues were significant, uh, and we wanted to make sure that we protected the record and, uh, so that we would have a, you know, everything protected uh, on First Amendment issues to go up on appeal. And then we had Fingers uh, Layton, uh, Richards Layton and Finger, Fingers in Delaware, the great firm. And so it was primarily those, uh, those firms that were combined together uh, to, um, and th there was never any question in my mind that this case was going to go to trial. Uh, that's why I was hired. And so I, 
immersed myself in the case. I kind of reassigned some other matters I had and, uh, and worked very hard to master the case and, and be ready to go to trial. And uh, that's kind of what happened to me. <laughs> Dan, I, just a follow-up. Um, by the time you got involved, um, was the discovery largely complete or were you involved in the discovery phase in any meaningful way? No, I was discard. I was involved heavily in discovery. Uh, I uh, the discovery went on for quite some time after I got involved, and I think my my primary role, I mean, my, at least my personal role, was was uh, representing the host that had the shows that were accused of defamation. So I got the privilege of working very closely with the host at, at Fox News and uh, came to like and respect them a great deal. I uh, became friendly with them. Uh, and enjoyed very much the opportunity to help prepare them for their depositions and was obviously preparing them for their, uh, for their trial testimony. Uh, and uh, so, no, my firm got thrown in with, there was a lot left to be done on discovery and developing the, the trial plan, uh, doing things like jury research, et cetera. So I, I clearly, well, I came in, maybe, let's say midstream, uh, there was a lot going on in this case that was crammed into the last seven or eight months before the trial. Got it. Was document production already complete by the time you got involved? No. That went on and on and on and on. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I want to go back and um, to a little bit of the beginning and something, Tom, that you said. Um, one of the things that struck me about the case at the complaint stage um, and I think I was, um, I, I said on 60 Minutes that it was the strongest uh, defamation case I think I had ever seen. Uh, and, the, and the main reason for that was the extraordinary efforts that Dominion made to get in front of anybody at Fox um, that uh, had a role in this um, uh, factual information about the falsity of uh, what was being said on Fox's air. Um, I don't want to be pejorative, uh, but but we all all of us who are defense lawyers around the table know that there are firms um, who regularly send you pre-litigation letters um, <laughs> that you throw in the garbage um, after reading them uh, because they they don't pass the the laugh test. Um, this was was something quite different, I, you know, with the links. And can you talk a little bit about the process of of going through that, identifying the the folks who would be recipients of these communications, and how that all worked? Sure. So that was in this frenzied period after uh, Thanksgiving weekend and sort of into December. Uh, and some of this work had already started before our, our involvement. I'd have to recognize Mitch Langberg at the Brownstein Hyatt firm that was involved uh, in representing Dominion before, even before the election on a whole range of regulatory issues. And Mitch, you know, does defamation work. He knows how to draft those letters. And he had sent, um, a, you know, what would be a pretty standard but effective uh, demand letter to the Fox law folks very, very early on. It was one of the first stakes in the ground about kind of putting them on notice of some of the facts that were known at that time. And so when, when we got involved, it was such a rapidly evolving factual landscape 
um, that rather than kind of send a series of lawyer letters that would be you know talking about the First Amendment principles and and all of that, um, we were wanting to make sure that that Fox and all these other media outlets were blanketed with the facts that were coming out each day as each new expert came out with a finding that these allegations were false as each you know person in the government came out and said we're rejecting these claims when bill barr came out and said it when cisa came out and said it we wanted to make sure that all of that information was collected in in as comprehensive a place as possible and, and honestly we really weren't thinking at that point about building a litigation record as much as we were trying to stop we're trying to stop the bleeding uh, we're trying to save this company and so we worked closely with Dominion, um, and we put together these kind of series of communications that were cleverly titled Setting the Record Straight, the uh, STRS uh, communications. And um, they went out on a pretty steady drumbeat, and we worked with um, some folks that were pretty plugged in and knew how to get them in the hands of producers and bookers and the on-air hosts. And we had uh, Tony Fratto's firm at Hamilton Place um, getting those to the top people at Fox, getting them to the on-air host, getting them to the bookers. And it was gratifying to me once document discovery came around to see how widely circulated they were. It was gratifying to me both because there was a lot of effort that went into it. And it was also gratifying to me because it was fantastic evidence of malice. <laughs> so I was really thrilled to see them show up in all these different places. But, um, but that's really what it was. And, and it wasn't done as much with the litigation record in mind as it was just making sure that we, who are collecting from a very broad source of information demonstrating falsity, were getting that in the hands of the people that were going on the air four or five times a day and, and saying these same things. And we were you know, begging them to stop. Dan, that raises a question that you may or may not be able to speak to, but I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> one, of the, one of the differences, I guess, between how Fox treated uh, Dominion and how Fox treated Smartmatic was that very, I will say, you can disagree, odd uh, point when on the hosts of the three program, the, the three programs that um, Smartmatic sued about, uh, the hosts introduced these um, prepackaged interviews with an election security expert who went through all of the allegations that had been made about Smartmatic um, on Fox's air and said, no, that's false, that's false, that's false. Um, why didn't Fox do anything similar for Dominion? Well, by the way, I should say, I actually don't know anything about that Smartmatic case. I actually, when I got hired, I got hired only on Dominion. And so I've had, I mean, literally no connection or involvement with Smartmatic. So um, I'm not, I really have not tracked what happened on the Smartmatic case. So I'm not sure I can answer your question. Um, I, I just don't know what happened on Smartmatic. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I have no knowledge about it at all. I just, I apologize, I, I just don't. Oh, that's fine, I, I, just, I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> okay, um, Dan, during, I'm, I'm gonna skip around here to things that just happened to interest me and you all will get a chance to ask questions later uh, as well, so. Um, one, one of the things that I tried to put myself in your shoes as the, the case was proceeding to the run-up to trial and the judge was issuing summary judgment rulings and issuing uh, rulings on motions in limine, 
uh, and kind of systematically depriving you of defenses <laughs> or arguments that, that, that you wanted to make. Um, I, my question is a two-parter. One is, um, which of the judge's rulings kind of uh, hamstringing you um, did you think was the most significant blow uh, to your, your ability to, to make the arguments you wanted to make? And since nobody ever got to hear it, can you tell us a little bit about what your opening statement would have been given the constraints that the judge put on you, at least on the liability side? Sure, that's a, that's that that is a fair question, Lee, and I can answer that. Uh, first, I think the ruling that I was most well did not appreciate very much from the judge was the falsity ruling. The judge took falsity out of the case, um, and uh, I obviously had already prepared an opening statement that there's two issues in every defamation case. Forget all of forget all the elements. What matters is falsity and malice. That's what matters in and damages, of course. And so I was, I had prepared uh, an opening statement and tested it in jury research uh, with both falsity and malice in it. And the court did take falsity away. Uh, and so that, look, that, I'm not sure we're here to talk about, there never will be an appeal here. Had there been an appeal, and I think all the First Amendment lawyers that are interested in First Amendment issues, the fact that the judge took falsity out of the case on a, on a summary judgment ruling would have been um, a big deal on appeal, okay? In fact, I think that could have been the card that got this case to the United States Supreme Court, but we don't have an appeal because we have a settlement. So your next question is, what effect did that have on my opening statement? And almost none. I didn't like the ruling, uh, but it had almost none because my... My view was that I could take what's left, malice, and I can tell my story within the confines of the malice requirements. I, as a trial lawyer, uh, Lee, I believe the guy that wins the case is the guy that has the best story for a jury to explain why I should win. So I thought, and I know there may be others that disagree, I recognize there's a lot of view in the media that Dominion had this very strong, powerful case and uh, and and et cetera, et cetera, I actually believed in and tested my theories with jury research. I had a compelling story to tell. And I, when I kind of fought with the judge after his rulings to maintain everything I wanted to say in my opening statement and through some offers of proof and discussions with the judge. When I was ready to give the opening statement, which is I was getting ready to get up 10 minutes before the settlement occurred, I had a compelling story to tell, which was the same story without falsity. It's just very simple. I had a simple, straightforward story. Very easy. To tell the jury why I win. Fox covered this story because President Trump made extraordinary allegations against Dominion. Extraordinary, newsworthy allegations that a voting machine company came into this country and, as a, and had got contracts with governments and actually stole the presidential election from him through vote fraud. And it was clearly the most newsworthy story of 2020. And so for me to convince the jury that the reason Fox covered initially the story was because that's what, that's what news organizations do. Any news organization that did not cover the president's dominion allegations, I think would have been 
I think it had been extraordinarily unusual not to cover it, and Fox covered it. And so for me to tell a story to the jury about why Fox covered the Dominion story because it was one of the most extraordinary uh, uh, newsworthy stories in years, uh, and it literally went to the heart of whether we have a democratic system of government or not, I could tell that story and explain it. And then I could tell the story, why did we continue to cover the story, the allegations, for about 30 days with uh, the president and uh, two of his lawyers on the air? I found that pretty easy to explain. I thought the story was pretty compelling, and I felt pretty confident about what a jury would do with it. We continued for 30 days because the president of the United States and his lawyers uh, told Fox News on the air about 25 times that they had compelling evidence, and they detailed affidavits and evidence they had that they were going to go to court and prove their allegations, and they filed lawsuits. And that's kind of what we're about in this country, I was going to tell the jury in my opening statement, that that is what courts are for. That's what they're for. So President Trump didn't just yap his gums. Uh, he actually hired good lawyers, went to court, and filed lawsuits, and explained over the next 30 days how much evidence they had to prove their case. Uh, and Fox knew, Fox News folks knew this had to be resolved quickly, within roughly 30 days, because by December 14th, uh, the evidence had to be in. And so Fox News continued to cover the president's dominion allegations for a short period of time, for about 30 days, because they believed that one way or the other, whether the president's allegations were true or false, would be established in a court of law, and then we'd have the answer. And when Fox News found out that the president's lawyers failed to establish their proof of the Dominion allegations before December 14th and cases were thrown out of court, Fox stopped covering it. Uh, so basically, that story that I just said, which is simple, easy, and straightforward, I thought I could ride to the OK Corral on that horse and eventually convince a jury that, uh, that I had a good case. Now, I've obviously simplified it here, and I'm not minimizing the complexities of, of the First Amendment. And, and by the way, was I going to clothe this case in the First Amendment? Yes. The New York Times malice case is because of the First Amendment. We were only litigating one issue in this case, malice and damages. And so I was obviously in my opening statement was going to explain to the jury that the reason this malice thing is on the screen here and that these requirements of having to know its faults or uh, reckless disregard of the truth, those are there because of the First Amendment. So yes, I was, gonna, I was gonna try to clothe the case in the First Amendment and tell a simple story to explain why Fox covered it initially and why Fox continued to cover it. Um, and I felt pretty comfortable with that storyline. That story really didn't change from the time that the summary judgment ruling came in, I managed to maintain most of it. Uh, there, may, there were some frills that I had to give up because of some of the judge's rulings on falsity and other issues. The, the, neutr the, the, uh, the, do the neutral doctrine uh, got taken away from me with the summary judgment rulings and the fair report doctrine was taken away. Those issues would have ended up, up on appeal. But uh, so I could not, I couldn't, I didn't have I wasn't going to get a jury instruction that basically said, if, if these allegations were newsworthy, then Fox could report them on the air, and even if the Fox hosts were skeptical of them, or even believed they were not true, 
there'd be an instruction that says that would be okay uh, based on the law of some sec Second Circuit cases. That was taken away by the court, so obviously I did not argue that. But otherwise, basically, uh, my story, I just, I just took the shoe and fit in the evidence under all of it, under malice and left out falsity, to answer your question. Thank you. I, I want to just follow up and then I'll go to, go to Tom. But um, what you just said, I think, is a, uh, a, a story about motive. Uh, it is why Fox did what it did. Um, how do you tie, how are you going to tie that into the issue of the state of mind of the relevant people with respect to truth or falsity once the judge took neutral reportage away from you? Um, and how are you going to deal with things like the brain room communications and the, the things I was just talking about with Tom, the, the communications uh, from uh, Dominion to Fox uh, setting out facts? Well, as far as malice is concerned, in simple terms, I think if the jury felt that Fox acted reasonably during this time period of why they covered the story, Remember, Dominion contended Fox, the motive to cover this story is that Fox had lost some Trump viewers because of the Arizona call on November 3rd. And that was their, so Dominion had a motive theory that I wanted to put on center stage and knock it down because I thought the evidence was overwhelming. That was not because of anything about the Arizona call, which by the way, turned out to be factually correct. Um, at the end of the day, uh, but that I wanted to knock down the motive that, that, that Dominion as the party of the burden of proof was going to put out there, that my motive, Fox's motive, was to cover it because it was so extraordinarily newsworthy, you had to cover it. That's what news people do, and they continue to cover it for that period of time. I thought if you showed the jury were reasonable, that will help defend on malice. And all of my hosts we're going to go on the stand and explain to the jury that under malice, uh, they basically were going to testify they had no way to know one way or the other whether President Trump's allegations were true or false. Because unless they got a hold of the voting machines that could do a forensic exam, they, didn't, they would not know. Unless the, the government was doing some investigation, they wouldn't know. But they did know that within 30 days, this evidence that Trump said he had, had to go in front of a judge, and then they would know. And I thought that story negated malice, okay, that we were acting in a reasonable way, and that if you act reasonably, you don't have malice. And of course, all the Fox hosts were going to explain in some detail what their state of mind was. Each one of them had a little different state of mind, okay? But at, when it cut down to the core, each one would tell the jury, look, I didn't know for sure one way or the other. I had the president over here as the president of the United States asserting 25 times with lawyers they had the evidence and describing it and they were going to prove it in court. Then I had over here Dominion insisting that they were innocent and that they had not in any way engaged in vote fraud. And Tucker and Hannity and uh, Maria and others they're going to basically explain Fox was in a search for the truth. And it wasn't going to be a long search because it's going to get resolved in a court of law, which is where we resolve all disputes in our country. 
Uh, and that, that's where this dispute was going to be involved. And yes, we knew that Bill Barr said he did not find any significant vote fraud. We knew that others were skeptical about the Dominion allegations. Uh, so we clearly accepted all of that. And by the way, we never, by well, the time I got involved in the case, we weren't arguing as to whether or not the, the Dominion allegations were true. Yes, they, when they failed to prove it in court, when the president is lawyer, they're false. And we accepted it, they were false. So we weren't arguing that, that we weren't trying to prove that yes, the Dominion machines were involved in fraud. But I was going to tell the jury that um, we, we covered this with a degree of reasonableness that I thought was pretty extraordinary. And then the moment it turned out that we, they failed in court, we stopped because when the, the court answered the question that we didn't know about, I believe that, if you will, position articulated through uh, credible witnesses for a period of five or six weeks. I, I'm not going to get into jury research and what we discovered, but I believed I had a storyline that would deal with malice uh, and that uh, I had a good shot at the jury. Thank you. Tom, I'm going to give you a chance to <laughs> respond to any of that that, that you'd like, in, including what portions of that you would have gotten up and objected to during opening <laughs> statements. But, um, uh, but I also want you to talk about, I, I want to kind of focus for a minute as well on the state of mind issue. And one, one of the things that I thought that was quite significant about the judge's summary judgment ruling was that he essentially punted on the issue of who within the Fox hierarchy's state of mind was relevant, um, which I read as saying it all came in and it was up to the jury to decide which of it was relevant, which if I was in your shoes, I would have thought was a very good development. Um, talk, uh, in, in addition to responding to whatever you'd like about uh, what Dan just said, talk a little bit about how um, you were going to deal with the issue at trial of whose state of mind was relevant. Sure. So, you know, the um, connective tissue of malice evidence in this case was really rich. Um, there was a lot of internal communications, some of which are, you know, on the public docket. There were a lot of internal communications that cross-pollinated across those verticals that we had of the different hosts communicating with each other, the teams communicating with each other, and then, of course, upward into... Um, uh, that one of the themes of our case was editorial control about who within the organizations, plural, had the ability to say up or down on what content could go on the air. And, and we saw some of that being exercised. And so, you know, we were going to deal with it kind of both horizontally and vertically. We were going to go in each of the the, the channels for each one of the statements because we knew we were going to be held to our proof on state of mind and we were going to show how the, the knowledge of falsity, uh, the things that were coming out publicly, the things that Dominion were putting in front of Fox people, the things that the Fox people were discovering on their own that we saw in their communications, and all of those things, how it percolated up to the people that were actually making the statements. And you know that was, of course, kind of the, the block and tackling of a, of a malice case. But then also showing how the editorial control, how people higher up on the food chain were also being made aware of those same facts and making decisions or in some cases not making decisions about um, the content that was going to go on the air. And so we had, a, we had a lot to work with both 
kind of at the host and producer level, but also higher up in the food chain. And you know, we thought that, that was relevant to a couple of things, not just the malice requirement. If the judge disagreed with us about where that would be relevant, and you know, to be to be candid, um, I, I did think that the judge's summary judgment ruling didn't give us a, either Dan or our team a, a roadmap on whose knowledge was going to be relevant. Fully expected that that issue would become more clear during trial. Once the judge heard the evidence, I would imagine there would have been a lot more argument on that, especially as we worked on jury instructions. And so we were planning to try the case with kind of the full range of instructions in mind, saying that, no, we, we satisfy the actual malice burden with the actual speakers of the false statements um, in order to make sure that we were touching that base and not just relying on kind of a bunch of bad internal documents. But we were blocking and trying to get each one of the statements tied to um, the overwhelming amount of malice evidence that we had. So that's, you know, we were surgical in our approach. The other issues that we thought some of that was relevant to is, you know, obviously punitive damages. We uh, felt this was a very compelling case for punitives. And in order to do that, we wanted to demonstrate the, the knowledge um, and the control, the ability to actually have stopped this or the decision to perpetuate it being made at the highest levels of the organization where we felt the jury would be more, more interested in uh, punitive damages. And so we had alternate theories for why, why this evidence came in. Um, but also, you know, we had to deal with the two different entities. We had Fox News and Fox Corp and wanted to make sure that we were showing how this information was jumping the fence into that, that other organization. Um, if I could transition briefly, oh, briefly just to respond to some of what, <laughs> what, what Dan said. Um, you know, uh, in some ways, we were really hoping that they were going to try to put on a truth case. Um, our view was that given the overwhelming evidence that we had and put in our summary judgment motion, that the um, putting on a case that these allegations were true uh, would allow us to make the point to the jury, you know, ladies and gentlemen, they still don't get it, and that's why we're here. You know, they still don't get it. The evidence of malice, the evidence of intent to harm, the requirement for punitive damages played out in front of you over the last six weeks. And so we were, in some ways, hopeful for that. Um, the flip side of that is we got an excellent ruling on falsity from the judge after who, who spent a ton of time going through the evidence that we had put out and gave us um, a line in his, his order that I was very proud of and said, the evidence developed in this civil proceeding demonstrates that it is crystal clear that none of the all statements, caps. all caps, all caps. <laughs> uh, relating to Dominion about the 2020 decision are true. And honestly, you know, when you, you, you we're representing plaintiffs in these cases, and you know, you think about what is your client's objective. As much fun as it would have been to try that case, and we had, you know, experts and business people who could very easily come on and explain why these allegations were demonstrably false. You know, one of our clients' objectives, one of their principal objectives, was to get a ruling in the Fox case that the statements were false, and you know, that statement by Judge Davis checked that box for us, and that you know, was one of the things that I'd say allowed us to be in a position where a resolution was possible. Because without it, we would have needed a statement from a jury saying that these allegations were false. And we were prepared to do it, fully prepared to do it. But um, it was important to the, the company, I would say, a paramount importance that we got that finding of falsity. Um, I, I want to also respond to something that Dan said about 
you know, the, the, the uh, argument that he was intending to put forward, and it was evident from the discovery and from the briefing about you know, why Fox was covering this. And I think a lot of the argument that, that he, he just so clearly laid out is sort of, why was Fox talking about this? And, and we, for us, the issue was not why Fox was talking about it, it was how Fox covered this. It wasn't you know, why Fox was talking about these allegations, but how through the endorsement of their on-air hosts who endorsed the claims and didn't just simply report on court allegations. We'll come back to that in a minute. No pressure testing, you know, not fact-checked in a meaningful way. Um, when the promises of evidence that were being made fell short time and time and time and time again, yet they continued to go on the air again and again and again. And, you know, there's a reason why Fox and OAN and Newsmax are the news outlets that we sued. Um, and there's a reason why other news outlets that covered these same issues didn't get sued. They were getting presented with the same set of facts, but it was the manner in which they covered them. There was a manner in which these allegations, these statements, could have been responsibly covered. And part of our case was going to be to say, you can respond, you can talk about these issues. This is not some verboten topic that you can't talk about the, the statements that are being made about voting machine election fraud, but it's how you did it. And you know, we have this, we had such great examples of the, in our view, reckless and irresponsible way it was being covered. The Lou Dobbs tweet, this is a cyber Pearl Harbor. Like, that's what was being said in December. You know, that is, in our view, not a responsible way to be covering allegations for which there was no evidence, for which so many experts had come out and said were, were false and that there was no evidence. And that's the reason why Fox and these other outlets got sued, is because they covered it in that particular manner. The issue about the, the cases, you know, the lawsuits that, that were supposedly dealing with this, this is, I think, you know, one of the things that I, mostly at cocktail parties, heard about people who knew not much about you know, the case was they'd say, well, isn't in fact the president making these allegations in court and isn't that, you know, is there some basis to cover that? And you know, the, the answer is really no. The Dominion allegations, the allegations that form the basis of the statements we sued on, we're very careful about the statements that we sued on and the ones that we didn't, we, with this in mind, those were not the allegations that were being made in the Kraken lawsuits and they were not being made in court. So it wasn't as if there were allegations that were being put forward in court about Dominion rigging these elections that were then being thrown out. These cases, the Dominion claims were never being put forward in court. And we, we felt that was a great fact for us because on the one hand, you have people that are prepared to stand up and say to the media, make these incredibly serious allegations about Dominion rigging the election, committing these, these crimes, these attorneys who were saying these things, but were unwilling to make those same allegations in verified court pleadings because you know, that, that has consequences. Going on Lou Dobbs doesn't have consequences uh, for those hosts. And so we, for the, uh, for the guests. And so um, the fact that the cases were thrown out of court the Kraken cases and all the other ones were really inconsequential to the, the state of mind argument because we were going to demonstrate to the jury case by case by case that those allegations were not being made in court and therefore you can talk about the president saying these things, no problem, but they need to be covered in a responsible way and the endorsement that these hosts were doing and that's one of the things that Judge Davis did in his motion to dismiss argument and, and kind of green lighting that theory that the hosts own statements about what their guests were talking about you know, allowed us to make that argument. Um, so 
um, you know, that's sort of the way we approach truth. Um, but I guess I'd kind of end where I started in that I had very mixed feelings about that ruling because on the one hand, I was extraordinarily happy that uh, we, we checked that box for the client. But on the other hand, it would have been a lot of fun to stand up and make that argument that, you know, they still don't get it. Dan, the, the, the judge um, appeared to give you some difficulty on the issue of not just did you have the right to repeat or to put Giuliani and Powell on the air uh, because what they were saying was newsworthy, which we've already talked about, but, but he seemed to be, as, as trial approached, and he was dealing with the motions in limine, he, he appeared to be pretty clear that he was not going to let you say, we didn't say it, they said it, we were just covering it because it was, you know, it, it was important to the most important issue that was going on at the time. Did, did you, did you, how did you prepare to deal with that, that, that notion that you were being essentially held responsible for what um, Giuliani and Powell said? Let me, that's a great question, and let me, I'm going to answer it directly in, in two ways. First of all, you're right. After the summary judgment ruling and after some of the motions in limine, as we were getting ready to go to trial, obviously the first thing I have to do is get up and give an opening statement. I, I started talking to the judge about what I can and can't do because, look, as a trial lawyer, I am going to follow the damn rules, okay? I, I, I need to know what the guidelines are, and I'm going to follow them. Uh, and I actually made, which I often don't do, I didn't just make an oral offer of proof. I filed a detailed written offer of proof, and I told the, everything I just told you that was my storyline about newsworthiness, uh, about uh, how long we covered it for 30 days, the court proceeded. I broke these down into five different points that I was going to use in my opening statement, and I did a mother may I. I asked the judge, I said, I want to make sure I can do this. And he, I got some rulings. Uh, there were sometimes I thought a little vagueness about the rulings, but he gave me some guidance, and I told him I was going to follow them. And when we, the day of the opening statement, uh, the night before I turned over my slides, Dominion made a lot of objections to my slides uh, that I was going to violate the court's orders uh, on what I could argue. Uh, we got to court that morning and I told the judge, look, <clears throat> we can do this the easy way or the hard way, basically. We can spend two hours here going through Dominion's objections or I'm going to tell you, Your Honor, I'm going to follow the, what you told me I can do and can't do. And so I, I don't expect that you're going to ask me to ever sit down and shut up or you're going to bring me to a sidebar. And he said, we're going to do it that way. Mr. Webb can get up and give his argument. Uh, and I was going to follow what I thought were the rulings he gave me. Uh, and I, I had believed that he was not going to, that what I just told you, what I just summarized for you in a very broad <laughs> cloth, I was going to tell the jury in my opening statement, which I believe I had a right to do within the confines of malice. However, this falsity issue, because we are, I know this is a First Amendment seminar, I'm curious because, and uh, you know, we're, uh, Tom, this issue about the judge's falsity ruling, 
This is maybe my question to all of you is more knowledgeable than I am about the First Amendment. Obviously, the, one of the elements of defamation is that it has to be proven that Fox itself made a false statement that's a defamation of dominion, that Fox has to make a false statement of fact. No one, I don't think, disputes that. However, uh, my part of my defense was that Fox didn't actually make any false statements. Fox did have Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani on the air. They did explain the president's dominion allegations. We did not adopt those allegations. We did not make those allegations. Fox News did not do any internal investigation that it got a hold of the machines and did a forensic exam. We couldn't, had no way to do that. And so we at Fox, the hosts are going to testify. You go through the transcripts line by line, page by page. Fox was being careful not to adopt the allegations because the hosts weren't sure one way or the other. So then we don't, you could argue about, you could argue on the fringes about whether we adopted some. And you, we could see what would happen at trial. But basically, I presented that position during the case. The judge's ruling, which I think is a profound First Amendment issue, is that the judge's ruling when you cut through it is that if someone makes an allegation and a news outlet in good faith covers it and, puts the and, and gives them a platform to make the allegation, even if they don't adopt the allegation or make the allegation themselves, if they give them the platform, they can be liable for making a false statement. And I think that's a profound First Amendment issue. And I, a hypothetical that I've used in private discussions is that if uh, a state's attorney were to indict a mayor for bribery, indict him, that's an allegation. So broadcaster goes on the air and brings on the state's attorney and lets the state's attorney explain his allegation that Mayor Jones took a bribe. The case goes to trial. Jury finds not guilty. So as far as I'm concerned, that means that it's, that statement is false. The statement is false. Does that mean that the media outlets that had the state's attorney on the air, that let the state's attorney, just because Fox was a platform for Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and the president to make their allegations and to find out what their evidence was and to grill them about what their evidence was, does that make Fox guilty of making a false statement? Because I believe that's essentially the, what the ruling is of the judge on falsity, and I think that has profound First Amendment issues on the issue of falsity. I, I'm curious about what others, well, and let Tom, I'll go with you. I, I know, Lee, I'm not supposed to be quizzing you. Okay? <laughs> Take it over my role. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, I, I, I'm going to say, um, because we're going to get into the Q&A portion in a, in a minute, and I'll, I'd be happy to have anybody around the table uh, here in, or in New York um, speak to Dan's point. But I will say, I, I, I want I to, before I turn over the mic to Seth again, I, I, I do want to ask one question about damages. Before I do that, I do want to say, Dan, I think... I think you are right that the, in the run-up to trial, there was a lot of 
discussion both in the briefs and in, um, in the media about whether uh, Fox could reasonably be held to have endorsed um, what Giuliani and Powell were saying in a manner that negated the neutral reportage doctrine even if it had applied. Um, but I, I did understand the judge to go much further than that in the rulings on the motion in limine and saying that I, I read him to say you are responsible for it, period, whether you endorsed it or not, um, which, which I do agree with you raises some serious First Amendment issues. Um, I want to switch just for a minute and talk about damages in, um, in two ways, um, and I'll, I'll let Tom go first and then, and then Dan. One is um, I'm interested in how the trial was going to unfold with respect to damages. Firstly, was it going to be bifurcated? Was there going to be a liability phase and a damages phase? And uh, was there going to be a liability dam uh, non-punitive damages phase and then a punitive damages phase? Was there any discussion of how that was going to be whacked up? And then second, and this is a, a question I think mostly for Tom, um, we all know that um, from reading about it uh, in the press beforehand that you all came, were going to come to trial with experts uh, and testimony to support a very large damages figure. And that, Dan, you were prepared to cross-examine those people and, uh, and try to show that the actual damages number was much lower. Um, in a defamation case where actual malice is proven, which it would have been by definition here if you got to damages, you would be entitled to presume damages as well. Um, so in addition to talking about how, at what point the damages analysis was going to, or the damages evidence was going to come into the case, both on actuals and punitives, um, how are you going to deal with the fact that you were you were on the one hand entitled to presume damages, but on the other hand you wanted to prove up all of this uh, actual dollar thing. Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the really, in terms of the, just the nuts and bolts of it, the, the damages piece of our case, the compensatory damage piece of our case was going to be in line with, with all the uh, liability-based evidence. There was not going to be a bifurcation. It wasn't going to be a separate set of proceeding. We were going to weave into our trial presentation different elements of damage, which I'm going to come back to in a second, kind of culminating with some of the expert testimony that we had on the financial issues that we were going to put forward our actual. Um, in terms of the question about kind of thematically, how do we, you know, how do we think about presumed damages versus proving it up? You know, this is really hard stuff to get your head wrapped around. Um, you know, this company and, and the testimony that we were going to offer from the representatives of the company around the country, the, the folks that were interacting with the election officials and who were, you know, understanding the enormous impact it had, and um, the impact that it had on the people, the men and women of Dominion who were, you know, on the front lines and taking horrendous personal abuse as a result of what was being said on the airwaves. You know, it's kind of hard to, to kind of put your head wrapped around what the presumed damages would look like given, given that. And um, a complication for us, uh, one that we were going to overcome with a carefully curated uh, trial presentation, was the nature of this industry. These are long-term relationships that exist between these counties that use election voting technology and the dominions of the world. And 
they are very cyclical. Once a county makes a massive investment in this infrastructure, um, there are a lot of barriers to entry for other competitors to come in and try to unseat the incumbent. The contract cycles are long, the RFP cycles are long, um, and so the, the entrenched business that Dominion had in some of these, uh, these counties had no long-term viability as a result of, of these statements that had been made. I mean, we would have put on evidence that they were not being invited to participate, being disqualified on the outset from participating in RFPs for counties that they had provided services to for the entire length of the company. They were just not even being invited to participate. Now that RFP may be for technology that's three, four, five years out because that they have to do that uh, the provisioning process that far in advance. But this company was done. I mean, the, the, the long-term viability of this company was done, and we needed a way to not just say that, but to prove it up. And so we wanted to tell the story. We wanted to talk about the threats, the death threats, the voicemails, the guy showing up at Dominion's office with the high-powered rifle, um, those human elements of what were unleashed by these false allegations. Uh, but we also needed to tell the economic story, and that was a that was a relatively you know significant part of our presentation because we understood it was an eye popping number. It was you know we were seeking effectively the enterprise value of the company, and we needed to be able to demonstrate that that's really what was at risk here, and and we were going to do that through a combination of. Uh, expert testimony, but also the testimony of the founder, John Poulos, who would talk about cradle to grave, how these contracts work, and why the, the company was effectively destroyed by this. Um, and you know, the judge had, had said to us that he was going to kind of deal with it, damage evidence as it came in. So you know, I fully expected there would have been a modification of the ground rules for how we would have put, been able to put in damages evidence as the, as the case went on because I think he wanted to wait and see how the evidence was coming in. But we knew it was going to be a huge part of it. We knew it was going to be a huge part of, of Dan's case. Um, you know, the two, the two things that we perceived from, from uh, what we were reading and what Dan was telling us was it was going to be all about newsworthiness and it was going to be all about damages. Those were going to be the two things. And, and, you know, from our perspective, Dan and his team were playing a smart short game and a smart long game. The, the short game was the newsworthiness, the, 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 the need to cover these allegations in the hopes that maybe we pick off a juror or two who feels that, you know, yes, this is an important newsworthy topic and we need to be able to cover it. And so sort of, uh, you know, notwithstanding the fact that we had very strong belief that newsworthiness was not a defense to any of the claims that we, we had brought as a legal matter, you know, sort of from a jury appeal matter, we, we figured that that's what he was doing, and he was playing a long game on damages with an appeal. Dan, let me ask you about um, the punitive damages. Was, was it going to be a, two questions. One is, was there going to be a, a separate bifurcated proceeding on punitive damages if Dominion had prevailed on, on liability? And second, what did you make of the judge's um, kind of hunting on the issue of whether punitive damages were recoverable under New York law and the summary judgment ruling. Why do, why do you think he, he did that? Well, by the way, so on the bifurcation issue, um, Lee, the, um, um, under Delaware law, unlike I could in other states, I, I was never going to like be able to say we're going to have two trials. We're going to have trial one where we're going to litigate like you, a lot of 
we're going to litigate compensatory damages, and we're going to litigate, we're going to litigate liability, we're going to litigate compensatory damages, and the jury's going to answer the question about entitlement, the entitlement question, but then that's trial one, and if they answer the, the entitlement question, yes, you have trial two with another jury that gets the, the evidence of basically that satisfies punitive damages. We're never going to get that in Delaware. So we were only going to get one trial. And so what our, we filed a motion on this. Our plan was the best we could do is we were going to have a trial on liability, compensatory damages. The jury would then answer the question on entitlement to punitive damages. And then at that point, there's some evidence that would only come in after that and not come in before. And that was primarily Fox's financial uh, cash on hand, uh, revenues. I had believed that that evidence um, uh, was going to run up punitive damages. Uh, and so I wanted to see if, so it, if, if they did not answer the entitlement question, I didn't want the jury to hear that evidence. Uh, and so that was the form of bifurcation. But the judge had not ruled on that yet. So right. he just hadn't ruled. And, and by the way, Tom's, Tom is absolutely correct. We both sides knew <clears throat> that damages was going to be a big focus of this case. Look, as a trial lawyer, I taught a, I lecture on this that and that as a plaintiff's lawyer, which I, by the way, I much rather represent the plaintiff than the defendant. I love being a plaintiff. That, I started as a prosecutor. That's where my home is. And that's, I don't get that a lot in the last 25 years. The fact is, <laughs> the fact is, I actually, Tom, thought that you, I thought your expert Hosfeld was kind of exposed on asking for $900 million uh, for lost business value when he couldn't establish any government contracts were lost at all. On the other hand, I understood the long game and what could happen in the future, and I got all that. Uh, I had thought that maybe if I had a, something that might benefit me in front of a jury, I'm probably thinking about some research I did. If, you, if the jury thinks you've overvalued your case, that can be an issue, okay? So we were going to have about, we, there's no question, we were going to have a battle on, on, on damages, particularly the lost business value, which was a big component of their co compensatory damages. So um, uh, so anyway, I don't know if I answered all your questions. I know you you got some time limits here. Yeah, I, I had one other, and, and I can throw it to both of you, which is um, it was surprising to me, at least, that in the summary judgment ruling, the judge did not decide the issue of whether punitive damages were recoverable under New York law, given the vagueness of what the standard is. Do, you, do either of you have a view as to why he, he held out on that? I don't. I was, um, I, I also kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit at that, and um, I don't, I don't know why he, he did. I mean, this was a very careful judge um, throughout the proceeding. We were very, very lucky to have Judge Davis. Um, the care and attention that he gave to everything that the, the parties filed uh, from the original complaint to the motion to dismiss briefing and argument to the summary judgment to all the motions in limine was really evident. And and he was, um, I found him to be uh, 
wisely incremental in some of his rulings and wanting to have a little bit more information to make sure that he would be addressing it in the context of sometimes more fully developed factual record. And so my surmise, and it's just surmise, is that that some of those questions he wanted to continue to think about, maybe was going to ask for more briefing on, but also under the legal standard, but also kind of see what, what the evidence would support and what it wouldn't before having to make that more difficult decision. Dan, thoughts on that? No, I agree with Tom. I, I don't... I don't know why the judge, I don't know and I don't want to speculate on why he did that. So I, I don't, I, the answer is I don't know. Okay. Um, Seth, I've gone over my time. <laughs> Tell the folks what's going to happen now. So what's going to happen next is we're going to have Q&A. We're going to do a round robin this way, which is that we have three basically buckets of, of folks uh, attending tonight. We have the folks here in D.C., we have the folks in New York, and we have the folks who are remote. And we're going to basically go through each one. Lee, you, uh, if you want to have a question here in D.C., if you raise your hand, they will call on you. And then we're done with that question, we'll go to New York, and I think Joe is going to call on whoever's in New York and ask the question. And then when we get to the online, let me just say a word about this. This is the most complicated piece. You need to go into um, the uh, menu, and there's a way to raise your virtual hand. Um, Lisa, I may need a reminder on where that is. If you can help me, Lisa Jarosnowski. Yeah, sure. So it's going to be at the bottom of their screen. They should see a hand icon. Um, and if they don't see it there, they can right click next to their name and do it that way. And I see some people already have found it. So that's great. Okay, excellent. And so what's going to happen then is that Lisa will unmute whoever's going to ask the question and they can ask the question and we'll come back in DC and we'll uh, lather, rinse, repeat and do it again. All right. Um, DC goes first. Any questions, comments? The lady in the red dress is disqualified from yes. asking questions. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure. All right. <laughs> yes. Do I need this thing? Okay. Um, this is actually a question for, for Tom. Um, I think it's, as you noted in the brief, when you filed your summary judgment brief, it's highly unusual for a plaintiff to move on actual malice. And, you know, I think we took note of that. Like, we don't, that's not something we see very often. And so I'm, I'm curious about the way you were thinking about that decision, whether it was driven by wanting to put evidence in the press, whether it was, you know, a trial strategy. And I, I just thought it was an interesting decision. And I'm curious how, how, that, how you came to that decision. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, and you know, you see us filing summary judgment motions all the time, and and uh, well, it, uh, <laughs> you know, this was an extraordinary case um, in a lot of different ways. It was extraordinary in terms of the the specific breadth of the allegations that we sued on. You know, we made a decision not to sue on all the statements that were made about, for example, you know, the vulnerability of electronic voting machines more generally. Like that's not something we needed to prove. Um, but as it related to malice, at we, as we got to the close of discovery and after we had completed all these depositions and we had seen all the internal documents and we had gone up and sideways and across, you know, this was an extraordinary case of where we believed that we could meet a summary judgment standard for demonstrating actual malice. And, and um, you know, we, we thought we had a shot. Um, you know, we, we, thought we, we also thought that Dan would have a compelling argument that it was a factual question and maybe the only factual question in the case. And so, um, but we wanted to take our shot. And um, it was really just as simple as that. If, if, if there ever were a case where 
a judge would consider taking malice away from a jury, we thought that there was an adequate basis to do it. And I'll give you an example of one of the pieces of evidence that I found to be most compelling. Everybody talks about the text messages and things that have been made public, and that they are certainly unbelievably, extraordinarily fun actual malice evidence. In fact, I'm not sure you know I'll ever see that type of evidence again. But um, one of the things until next week. Um, uh, uh, exactly. Um, but you know, one of the things that that uh, we had in the case that we, we don't normally have. I'll give you Lou Dobbs as an example. Right, his show was broadcast twice: once in the five o'clock hour, and then once in the seven o'clock hour. And that presented an extraordinary and unique opportunity to argue malice because. The, one of the things that Fox was saying in their papers was like, oh, we had no idea what these people were going to say when they went on the air, and you know, we pressed them, do you have evidence? And we would never have put them on the air if we'd known that their evidence was, you know, was, was nothing. Well, this was a control experiment, right? We had the Lou Dobbs control experiment. It was like they put Sidney Powell on at 5 o'clock. She said her crazy stuff without any evidence. They then knew that she had just said this crazy stuff without evidence, and they had a full hour to make changes, to edit, to put something else on the air, and they chose to rebroadcast it. You know, they made an affirmative decision like, hey, we're gonna rebroadcast this at seven o'clock. And that, we don't normally have that type of a fact pattern where, you know, you have like in the old days a morning edition of a newspaper and then all sorts of correspondence with Claire Locke and then an evening edition of the newspaper. <laughs> We kind of had that here, and, and so we felt that it was worth taking a shot on Malice. I guess it's less, you know, clearly there was a lot. Oh, sorry. Clearly there was a lot there. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the, you know, you said you want, the client wanted a declaration of falsity, but it would have been fun to try and, like, useful to have that evidence in trial, I'm sure. You know, if you want unnatural Malice, then it gets taken away from the jury trial, which I'm sure some of that goes to your damages, too. So I'm, I'm <laughs> You know, did you want to win that motion, I guess, is the question. Did you, like, were, were you, whether you think you have a good one or not, is it better for you to lose that motion? Well, we thought, we thought we would, if we won that motion, or even if we didn't, we thought a lot of that same evidence was coming in on punitives uh, and for, for damages. And so, you know, it's also very powerful to be able to stand up in, in response to what, you know, what we would have anticipated Dan's opening statement to say is, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the judge has already decided all of the major issues in this case, except for you know this one, damages. It's you know defamatory meaning. It's publishing. It's of a concerning. It's blah blah blah. All the things. Um, but you know uh, we were happy either way. We were happy to put on the, the trial evidence, but we we thought we would take a shot at it. New York. Hi, uh, I'm Steve Battaglio from the Los Angeles Times. I I uh, cover the case and, and the trial. Um, I, I wanted to ask Dan. I I, I know that the strategy was going to be that the, that the anchors were going to be on the stand and were going to say that, that they did not know uh, that whether these allegations were true or not, and that's why they were presenting them. However, wasn't there a lot of evidence in, in discovery, such as um, Sean Hannity saying, I, didn't, I believe he said something to the effect of, I, I didn't believe any of it. Uh, and there were, um, there were uh, other texts as, as well from producers and, and people who were responsible uh, for for these broadcasts and what went on those broadcasts where there was uh, tremendous uh, skepticism in terms of the, the, the veracity of these claims. Well, the, the, so I was kind of looking forward to the trial because I honestly, I spent a lot of time working with the host 
the five or six hosts that were going to be the main witnesses. Uh, and I felt pretty good about their test, obviously prepared them for direct and cross. Uh, and so you know, the, the proof would have been as far as what happened if we had tried the case for six weeks. But to answer your question, I believe each one of these hosts was going to give their own testimony as to what they actually thought when they first heard the, the president's dominion allegations and what they thought over time. And basically, what they're going to test is that they honestly were going to, they're going to explain to the jury and look right in the jury and say, look, I had no way to know for certain whether the president and his lawyers had the evidence or did not have it. They said they had the evidence. They sometimes detailed the number of affidavits they had. And so they indicated to us that they had evidence, but I had to wait because I wanted to see what the courts did with it. Because if the court said, you haven't proven it, then I know it's, you haven't proven it, and we're going to stop covering it. And that's what most of them said. It was a search for their truth. They weren't saying that we were convinced it was true. They weren't saying they were convinced it's false. Um, they were simply telling the jury that it was a search for the truth. And because they had filed these cases in court, what's, why don't we wait to see what the court does with it and answer the question? Some of the hosts would explain that they had more skepticism than others did. Others had believed that because of the history of voting machines in this country, that there was some plausibility to the idea that these machines could be used for vote fraud. Uh, good or bad, right or wrong, that's what they believed. Uh, and so you'd, I don't. it's not like I had all six hosts that were going to say the exact same thing uh, in front of the jury, but as far as the legal definition of malice, whether they knew it was false, the answer is no. Uh, whether they actually were acting in reckless disregard of the truth, no. But at the same time, we're not riding uh, on the horse of Trump saying that we were certain about it because, but these lawyers, look, when Trump said, if he just was yapping his gums and said he made the allegations, this thing would have died in a day. It was because he said he was taking the cases to court. He hired litigators to go to court and that they had the evidence. And they said it for 30 days they had the evidence and detailed affidavits, whistleblower evidence that they had. That's what kept this story alive for 30 days in a reasonable way for journalists to want to cover it. But I will tell you, the host would have said they weren't sure that Trump was telling the truth. They just did not know, but they were going to wait to see what a court did with it. And I was my view that for malice, that story of what happened, which was the truth, made sense to me that would show the jury that they were acting in a reasonable way and in a rational way and for a short period of time. This is not litigation that's going to go on for six months. It had to be done in 30 days because of the December 14th date. And so we would have known, but to answer your question is, Yes, I realize there are documents out there that they would have to deal with on cross-examination. But I thought the fundamental testimony on malice by these six hosts, who I got to be very comfortable with, as far as their ability to communicate, tell the truth, and, and get across to the jury why they did it, I was pretty comfortable with that. And I thought it, would, I thought it was going to play pretty well in Delaware. The gentleman in Washington, any response? Um. 
these cross examinations of these hosts um, would have been epic. <laughs> I was very, I was very sad that day when the judge said the case was resolved. Uh, I, I another question. Um, the number was public. Was that something that was negotiated as part of the settlement? That making the number, that that Dominion was able to make the number public. Um, I, I'm not going to talk about actual discussions that led to the settlement. I don't um, think that's fair to the process. Um, but um, you know, it was important to Dominion that there be, in addition to a judicial finding of falsity, uh, which I mentioned earlier, that there be some accountability. And I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to get into the settlement. I think that's something that was confidential. The settlement's not confidential. It's spread a record, and there it is, and you all have it. Uh, what went into the settlement discussions and how it all came about, I think you can all tell it happened fast. I was, we were getting ready to give opening statements. So it wasn't like this thing had been planned out. It happened quick, and it was done. That's what happened. We've been writing that the settlement is, is the largest known one for, for a, a media case like this. However, nobody really knows what the, the BPI number was. was. Is it safe to say that this was higher than the BPI number? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to be successful in leaving today and not know. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we move, Lisa, if we could, to our uh, online uh, participants. All right, Jess Bravin, you're up. Hey, uh, uh, a question actually about, um, uh, 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 I see your, your correspondence continued uh, after, the, after the settlement. I wanted to ask about this letter that uh, Dan sent to Tom on, on May 5th, uh, asking Tom to investigate how certain materials related to the case uh, were published uh, and, and asking uh, Tom to investigate whether he or his client were the source of these materials that ended up in the news media. My, my question for, for Tom is, did you conduct an investigation and, and what are the results that Dan asked you to produce by May 8th? And my question for Dan is that after mounting this vigorous freedom of the press uh, argument, uh, isn't it a little rich to start trying to suppress uh, news about uh, one of those newsworthy events going on uh, in, in the country. So um, I'm going to respect uh, Dan with, with my response here. I've responded, uh, our team has responded uh, directly to Dan's letter, and we've addressed um, his request. Uh, we did an investigation. Uh, we concluded unequivocally that the leak of this information did not come from our client or our legal teams. And I would just say off the record, uh, not off the record, but outside of that correspondence, that um, you know the amount of leaks of other things that have come out of Fox in recent weeks since the settlement was announced um, gave us some pretty good circumstantial evidence about where this other material had leaked. We can't prove that, of course, but it certainly points in a different direction than Dominion and its legal team. Um, so, uh, and I'm also anxious to hear Dan's answer to your second question. 
<laughs> well, let, let me say this. Um, by the way, I will say that I don't have any desire to comment on communications I have with uh, the plaintiff's firm in this case. I built up a very good professional relationship with Tom's firm and with uh, the Sussman Godfrey firm. Uh, and I communicate with them in a professional way. They communicate with me in a professional way. And I don't, I'm just not going to talk about why I send letters and why I do it. Okay. So, DC, question, anybody? Jane. Um, so, I was doing a fair amount of punditry on this case as it was unfolding and got some pushback from people on both sides of the, of the aisle in this. But I have a question that relates to the actual malice issue. Tom, you had made a comment about one of Lou Dobbs's statements to the effect that this was a cyber Pearl Harbor, I think was the term you used. And I'm curious to know whether either of you think that there's an argument to be made that for pundits who are paid to be hyperbolic, who are paid to be outrageous, should there be protection for those kinds of comments? And should perhaps the measure of actual malice determining what it would be, is it different for a pundit than it is for a straight news reporter or commentator? Yeah, I mean, what the law should be, if, if, I have, if I get to be king of the First Amendment world for a day and define the law, we would go way back further than the actual malice standard. But I, um, look, I, uh, I'm trying to be careful in how I respond to respect confidential information, um, but I will just say that there was ample evidence that we intended to present at trial through testimony and documents that um, the audiences of these shows had a right to expect that they were getting accurate and truthful factual information from the people that they were tuning in to watch and that that was understood on the other side as a responsibility that they had and an expectation that viewers had that they were getting accurate and truthful information and that they were entitled to, to provide it. You know, the Cyber Pearl Harbor quote, um, you know, it's obviously a, a very strong statement, but it informs the meaning of a lot of other statements that were made that, you know, were less hyperbolic. Um, when arguments tried to be made, well, all we were doing was reporting on the allegations that were being made. You know, when Dan makes that argument, I'd say, okay, but you know, this, these are your words. These are the words that you chose to say in your own voice on your own Twitter handle. And whether or not it's more hyperbolic than some of the other statements we sued on, or whether or not the state of mind that goes into those statements is the same or different when they're supposedly reporting on facts, it informs the meaning. It informs the meaning that they were trying to get across. And so, you know, these broadcasts were not just hyperbolic ranting about this. It was, I'm going to give you new information here today, you know, the latest from Sidney Powell or Rudy Giuliani or just my monologue about what's the latest information in the Dominion voting fraud scandal. Fact, 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 fact. And then you have uh, the, the Cyber Pearl Harbor tweet. Part of our argument that goes to malice is, yeah, that informs the intent and the meaning behind all of those other fact, fact, fact statements. It'd say, well, I was just reporting on what the president said. Not true. You told the world 
that all those things amount to a cyber Pearl Harbor. So whether it goes to being independently actionable, where we kind of pieced, what, what was his intent when he tweeted cyber Pearl Harbor, or whether it, it goes to informing the meaning of what was his intent when he reported all these other things, we don't have to guess what was in his mind. We know because he tweeted it. And so that's the way that some of those more hyperbolic statements interplayed with, with the other. Dan, you want to comment on that? Well, I can just, I mean, well, a couple of comments. Uh, Lou Dobbs' show is an opinion show. Lou Dobbs would have explained to the jury in some detail. He knows exactly who his audience is. His audience knows who he is. He has strong opinions, and they do surface. Uh, and the Cyber Pearl Harbor is an opinion that he expressed. And by the way, I will say this without going into detail. Uh, I know that Lou Dobbs is someone that was no longer had a Fox show at the time that uh, this case was going forward. But Lou Dobbs was anxious to go on the witness stand and talk about what happened on his show and what was said and why it's an opinion show. And I quite frankly enjoyed getting a chance to know Lou. He didn't have to cooperate with me that much. And he did because he was waiting to come on the stand and tell his story of what happened on his show and about what his opinions are and how his audience understands who he is, and they've understood it for years. And I would say from, without going into jury research, I think jurors would understand that uh, there were a lot of opinions expressed by Lou Dobbs uh, that were opinions, uh, and we, I'll leave it at that. All right, I think we'll go to New York. Joe? Uh, hi, uh, it's Lynn Overlander. Quick question, if this had gone up on appeal, no matter who would want it at trial, how do you think the Supreme Court would have ruled in this? Dan? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tom, I'm going to, I think if you want me to go first, so the answer is yes. I don't have an answer to that. I don't know how the Supreme Court was going to rule on this. Uh, there was uh, obviously, uh, the Clement Murphy firm was, was going to handle the appeal. I was not. They are one of the great law firms in America in handling appeals to the Supreme Court. Uh, I raised the falsity issue with all of you, and some of you I think who have more First Amendment knowledge than I do. I, for what, I, for what it's worth, I had thought that the judge's falsity ruling uh, would be an issue that could very well end up in front of the United States Supreme Court. And intellectually, for me, as someone that does deal with First Amendment issues, but not with the expertise some of you have, I thought the falsity ruling was incorrect. And if that summary judgment was wrong on falsity, that would, lead to a, that would have been a reversal. That would not be harmless error. That would have been a reversal. Um, I guess from, from my point of view, I mean, obviously, uh, we knew this was a, a huge case. We knew that, that there was a lot of attention on it. We knew that Dan and his team were playing for, for an appeal, and we were obviously um, mindful of that throughout the case. But from our point of view, this was a pretty straight down the fairway defamation case. I mean, this was not, you know, we weren't exploring the edges and the outer boundaries of the elements. And, you know, we were playing this right down the middle of the fairway with, with the, the law. And so, um, you know, we obviously were interested in, in making sure we had a clean record for appeal. 
appellate courts in this area are always interested in damages. So that was obviously an area that we were, were interested in making sure that we had a, a sufficient record uh, of the presumed and, and actual economic damages to be able to support and survive an appeal. But you know the other legal rulings and the legal issues presented by the case were not not particularly novel. I mean, you know, would I have welcomed uh, the United States Supreme Court holding as a matter of uh, again that there's no newsworthiness defense to defamation? Sure, I would welcome that ruling or or making clear what what we know that the fair report privilege doesn't really exist in many of these jurisdictions. Yeah, I would have welcomed that. But that's really not what this case was about. It was right down the, the line. And we were, we were going to try it like a straight down the middle defamation case. And so um, we were ready for appeal. But, but in my view, probably the one issue on appeal that would have gotten a harder look would have been damages because we would have uh, asked for and, and, in my view, gotten an eye-popping number at trial. You know, so uh, Lisa, can can you... Uh... Yeah, sure. Uh, George Freeman, you're up now, and you should just be able to uh, unmute and go. Am I unmuted now? Yeah, you're good, George. Go ahead. Hey, uh, this is for Dan. I want to try to respond to your question with a question uh, about what was wrong with your opening statement, and does, doesn't shouldn't the media be allowed to repeat what others are saying if, if the media entity, Fox, didn't say it themselves? And somehow, in your very reasonable argument, you miss kind of a basic black letter law, which is the word republication. And the law has always been that the repeater of a speaker is as responsible for what he, the substance of what he says than the original speaker himself. And I think that's harsh, but that's what the law is. Um, so you're bumping up against that. On the other hand, 47 years ago, a federal judge here in New York realized that this didn't make sense in a newsworthy context and came up with a privilege called the neutral reportage privilege, which kind of corrects that and says in certain occasions, uh, it is a defense uh, where, where the statement you're repeating is newsworthy, which is really what your argument is. And it's what Fox has been saying from a PR point of view from day one in this case. So my question is, why didn't the legal team emphasize and make more of a point that neutral reportage ought to be recognized, which would have led, I think, to the jury deciding whether or not Fox endorsed the statements, which you say you could show they didn't, and presumably Tom would say that he could show that they did. But at least that would have been the question. But you didn't, the legal team didn't really seem to push before the judge dismissed it, but on mo the earlier motions, didn't seem to bush or talk about neutral reportage that much. Now, I'm aware that there's a New York case from 30 years ago in upstate New York in the mid-level appellate court that says New York doesn't recognize it, but it fits the, the facts of this case so well, I would have thought that a run-up that ladder would be far more success successful than trying to butt heads with this republication principle which has been the law forever. Well, actually, I'm not sure if I understand. Way. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Did I interrupt your question? I no, apologize. no. I just said that was a question rather than a statement. But uh, I, I just wonder how you would respond to that. Well, I, I didn't argue the summary judgment motion, but I was there for it. I, the, I, we clearly raised the neutral report doctrine at, at, with every ounce of 
credibility and persuasiveness that we had, and the judge ruled against us on summary judgment and took the case away on that issue. If I had gotten, if I had, I, I wanted as much as I could have, it would have helped me go a long ways of winning this case if I got the neutral report instruction. The neutral report instruction would say that if we satisfied the neutral report requirement, it did not matter whether we believed it was true or false. It did not matter. Even if we believed it was false, we cannot be found liable if it's newsworthy. That, that would have been a mecca for us. We fought hard for it, and we lost because the judge ruled against us. Uh, I then had to shoehorn the newsworthiness under, under uh, malice, but I couldn't argue what I wanted to argue, which was the neutral, the neutral report instruction. If I had that neutral report instruction to argue uh, at the trial, that would have had a profound impact on this case, but that was taken away by summary judgment. So when we talk here about the issues that would go up on appeal, I'm not minimizing the judge's summary judgment on the neutral report uh, issue, but that was taken away from us. So I just want to uh, end by responding to Lynn's question about what the Supreme Court would have done with this case. Um, and uh, although I suppose anything can happen, I am reasonably confident about two things. One is that if Fox had prevailed, the court would have taken the case and New York Times versus Sullivan would have been overruled. Um, second, um, if Dominion won the case, there is no way on earth the Supreme Court would have touched this case. And the fact that the general counsel of Fox Corporation, Viet Dinh, supposedly told his client that he was certain that the Supreme Court would take the case if Dominion won and rule in their favor uh, is truly from another universe. <laughs> and on that happy note. <laughs> um, Justice Levine, thank you for that. Uh, I would like to just, if I could, uh, ask one final question. Will, will the discovery materials in this case ever become public? I could not hear the question. I didn't hear the question. I was wondering if all of the discovery materials in this case will ever be made public. Other people than I get to make that decision. Um, there are still some pending motions uh, to address you know, some of the publicly filed material that was presented in a redacted form. Um, you know, I don't know how that's going to be taken up. Well, and I would also say that, yes, the judge still has some issues in front of him, so we're not going to speculate on that. And I might also comment that I've never had a case in 40 years where all the discovery became known after a settlement. I've never seen it happen. So that's, that's life in the big city. Uh, might we anticipate some leaks? <laughs> uh, gentlemen, on that note, thank you so much, uh, Tom, Dan, and Lee. This is exactly what the First Amendment swans uh, were designed to do, and we so appreciate this, uh, uh, this exchange tonight, which, by the way, is going to be posted on the First Amendment uh, Salon uh, FIRE website uh, when we have it. I'm also, I also understand that Nico Perino at FIRE will have a, a podcast of this as well, so please, uh, we'll keep you posted on that. And I can't thank for our next salon, uh, which is again on June 12th, um, a better topic than a book called 
actual malice, uh, and that's with uh, Professor uh, Barbas. So please join us on June 12th. Meanwhile, New York, uh, Washington, D.C., and everyone else goes out in the um, web uh, world. Thank you tonight for joining us. With that, we're